The Apostle Paul writes these words in Colossians chapter 1. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Let's pray. Father, Lord, today we have sung in prayer that the Spirit would come and descend upon us. Father, everything we do today is in complete dependence upon Your Spirit. We can do nothing apart from Your Spirit. So, Lord, we ask today that You would give the Spirit in full measure, that You would hold nothing back. Father, convict us through Your Word today. Encourage us with the hope we have in Christ. And Father, work as only You can. Apart from You, apart from You, Father, what we do here is foolishness. But Lord, with You, what we do glorifies You, transforms us, and changes us into the image of Your beloved Son. Father, work in our midst through your Spirit today. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Haggai, or Haggai, however you want to pronounce it. We're back to our series on the last four prophets, the last four minor prophets, looking at Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And of course, we come today to Haggai, or Haggai. This is the shortest of the books of the minor prophets that we're going to be looking to. It's not the shortest of the minor prophets, but it's the shortest of the ones we're going to be looking at. We really know very little of the prophet Haggai apart from what this book says and then his being mentioned in the book of Ezra. The book is written during a time that we call the post-exilic age. This is after Israel as a nation has been destroyed, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, both kingdoms taken away into captivity, into Babylon and into Persia. And so what we have now is the people being allowed by the sovereign hand of God working in the heart of Darius to allow some of the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. And as they return, they come to a city that lies in ruins. The walls are broken down. The temple is completely destroyed. And so the setting that Haggai speaks into is one of great difficulty. It's one where the people are having to labor intensely to rebuild that which they once had. Haggai comes and is used by God to deliver four primary messages. And we see that throughout this book, 
uh, that there are, there's one main message in chapter 1, and then we have three other messages in chapter 2. And they are designated by this um, formula, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. The people, as they come into this arduous task, uh, have leaders that they look to. And so Haggai primarily speaks to these leaders, but it also is focused on the people as well. And the people come, and one of the things that Haggai puts his finger on is their preoccupation with themselves at the expense of seeking to build God's temple. As they seek to rebuild Jerusalem, they look to their own houses, they look to their own needs first, while they allow God's temple to lie in ruins. And so Haggai is used by God to break up the hard soil of their souls that are primarily focused on themselves. He calls them to remember the preeminence that Christ is to have among them. And so, as we're looking through this book, we are seeing Haggai as a prophet who has passion for Christ's preeminence. And in particular, this morning, as we look at chapter 1, we're going to see him calling us to pursue the preeminence of Christ. American Christianity has in many ways become a religion of convenience. We have made our commitment to Christ dependent on so many other different things. We make sure that certain things are in place and we make sure that certain aspects of our lives are taken care of and then we will attend to the things of the Lord. In many ways, we give God our leftovers. We give God that which is left over at the end of the day once we've taken care of our priorities. We've elevated so many things over Christ. And throughout Scripture, the message is abundantly clear. God is not interested in your leftovers. God wants and demands preeminence. Christ must be first. And so as we come to this book that is admittedly going to address things in a time that is somewhat foreign to us, Yet the principle that Haggai brings by the word of the Lord to us is just as important for us today as it was thousands of years ago. That we must passionately pursue the preeminence of Christ. That each and every one of you here today must be passionate about placing Christ first. Look with me in Haggai chapter 1. Verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter and then we'll work our way through it. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozdak, the high priest. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So we see and are able to see both God's word, God's, God's judgment that is promised, and the obedience of God's people and the blessing that God brings, all in this one chapter. It's a remarkable chapter of God's Word. And there are three things I primarily want us to look to that we can learn today about how we can passionately pursue the preeminence of Christ in our lives. And the first thing is we pursue Christ's preeminence by submitting to His Word. Pursue Christ's preeminence by submitting to His Word. We are a very individualistic society. We like to do things our way. We like to follow our path. We like to go our own way. And I think at times we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're pursuing Christ's preeminence. We're following Him as long as, as that's what we think that we're doing, that we're doing it right. But God speaks through His prophets. God speaks through His Word for the express purpose of calling us to recognize how we must Pursue it according to His standard. 
That brings us to recognize first and foremost that first and foremost that God's word is authoritative. Again, one of the things we see with all the prophets, it's not just limited here to Haggai, it's something we saw with Zephaniah, is this striking formula. The word of the Lord came. When Haggai got up and and proclaimed to to, uh, Zerubbabel and proclaimed to Joshua and proclaimed to all the people the word, it was not his opinion. He didn't come to give people his ideas on the current political and socioeconomic situation in Jerusalem at that day. He didn't come to give them a nice talk and, and to build them up. Rather, he came with a simple mission. This is what God says to you. He took the word of the Lord that came to him and gave it to the people. You know, it is remarkable to me to see how God consistently, throughout the history of redemption, the history of what we have in the Bible, uses people to provide His message. We can go back and it really began with Adam. Adam was given a word that was provided to him as to how he was to live before the Lord. And then his responsibility was to take that message and teach his wife and and his family what God had said. We see it with Noah who is a a herald of righteousness, the New Testament calls. We see it with Moses, Samuel, David, Abraham, Elijah, the prophets, the apostles. And to this day, he appoints people to give his message. Now, he doesn't appoint them in the same way as the word of the Lord coming directly to them. Rather, the word of the Lord is given to us in what we have in God's word. But the people he uses are evangelists and pastor teachers who take the word and provide it to God's people. Listen, when I come before you and, and, and preach, there's no authority I hold within myself. You know, who am I? I'm just Phil Golden who lives down in Carnegie. That's why at this ministry, at this church, we are focused on taking and bringing to light what God has said because nothing else truly matters. We can have all sorts of political pundits. We can have all sorts of different opinions on how we can address all the ills of our society, but the reality is the only thing that truly matters is the Word of God. And it is authoritative. It's interesting that, that Haggai comes and he doesn't have to establish why Joshua, why Zerubbabel, why the people should listen to him. Because he brings the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord has authority. That means that God has the right to tell you what to do, what to believe, and how to live. God has that right. The problem is we don't recognize that in our day and age. We don't recognize it in our own hearts. We are all like sheep who go astray. We turn every one of us to whose way? Our own way. And so we have this desire to follow our own personal opinions, to follow our own ideas, to go our own way, to to let our thoughts be the thing that guides us. But Scripture is clear. We don't need more of our own thoughts. We need more of God's thoughts. Beginning of wisdom comes not from 
looking within, but the beginning of wisdom, what does Proverbs say? The beginning of wisdom comes in the fear of the Lord. And so if we are going to set about in obeying Christ's commands, Paul's commands, God's command to place Christ first, it must begin with an attitude towards Scripture that says, I will submit. I will take my life and conform it to what God has said. It comes with recognizing the authority of God's Word. Now, I look out here today, and I know most of you pretty well, and and I'm pretty sure that every one of you would say, Amen, yes. In fact, I heard some amens earlier. And that's wonderful that we have that attitude. But look at your life this past week. You don't have to look much farther than this past week. How many times did you submit to the authority of God's Word, and how many times did you follow your own way? And I bring that up to just show us that we still need to be reminded that God's word is our authority. We need to follow what he says, not our own opinions. And so as we come here today, as we we come every Sunday, our desire is to lean on the wisdom of God and let that be the thing that directs us. But as God's word is authoritative, the second thing we see is God's word is probing. God's word is probing. Listen, the word of God is not simply a book of simple platitudes. It's not a self-help manual. Rather, the authority of God's word based upon that right that he has to correct our paths and to tell us what to do, he does that by putting his finger directly on our sinful problems. What does Paul say to Timothy? All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's where the authority comes from. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in Righteousness. God's word comes not simply to make you feel better about yourself, although that is a glorious truth that happens when we see that hope in Christ, but to find that it begins by pointing out where we have fallen short. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is like a sword, a sharp two-edged sword. In fact, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And this sword that God uses is used like a a finely honed medical instrument. It is a scalpel that pierces to the very depths of who we are, to the division of our soul and of our spirit, of joints and of our marrow. And it discerns not just what we do, but the thoughts and intents of what? Our hearts. And this is exactly what we see happening in this prophecy of Haggai. He comes and the word of the Lord comes to him and and he says, he begins in verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the, the house of the Lord. This is their opinion. This is what they think. What does God think about that? And he puts his finger directly on their sin. He's like, listen, you're living in your paneled houses. You're taking care of your own affairs. You're taking care of you. But my house lies in ruins. 
How can you do this? God says. He calls out their insincerity towards following him. Notice the, 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 I, the term that he uses there in verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come. It's interesting how we can sort of get with that same idea. Not yet. I'll do it later. I'll put it off towards later. I have all the great intentions to take care of and to follow the Lord, but I need to do these things first. How much we are like Israel. We say not yet. We have great intentions. In fact, God may sit very, very highly on our priorities, but there's at times things that are greater than Him. And so we say, now is not the time. Thank you for coming here this morning. It's a beautiful day out there, isn't it? Who wouldn't love to be in a park with a picnic right now? Thank you for being here. How many times have we said not yet in other areas of our lives? And so God comes and he puts his finger directly on not just what the people are doing, but on the very fundamental underlying principle of their hearts that God is just not as important to them as he ought to be. And so for Israel, God puts his finger directly on this and probes their convenient religion by calling them out. Your houses are paneled, but my house lays in ruins. I think this is an apt description of the American church, right? You know, we, we, if you read articles about the church, if you look into that type of thing, there's article after article after article after article about the problems with American evangelicalism. Why churches are shrinking, why people don't come to church, and, and, and a, a litany of, of ink is spilled. I guess we don't spill ink anymore. A litany of digital matter, whatever that is, is put out there in the blogospheres. And there are trends, there are surveys, there are, there are things that show, there's demographic reasons, and, and there's all sorts of things that have been vying for trying to explain the decline of the church in America. And I think it's pretty simple. We don't put Christ first. And thus the church declines. Thus the church is in ruins. We have in many ways replaced our dreams for Christ's kingdom with our dreams for the American dream. We pursue what society calls us to have. Again, just some, some statistics. In 2019, which is the latest that Lifeway Christian Research has data on this, 4,500 churches closed in America in that year, in one year. Now, there were another 3,000 that opened, but it was the first time in recent history where the number that closed eclipsed the number that actually opened. So we had a net loss of 1,500 churches across this country. And again, there's hand-wringing and wondering, why is this? 
And the answer, I think, Haggai provides for us. We take care of ourselves first before we take care of God, before we look to the things of Him. Christ's church and Christ Himself, for that matter, is something we seek when it is convenient. It's not a priority. I wonder how God would be touching your heart this morning with this. What areas in your life do you seek God second or third or 75th or 118th? And what parts of your life do you say, now is not the time to take care of that? And the words of Haggai uttered by the inspiration of the Spirit thousands of years ago are just as applicable to us today here in the Pittsburgh area. Now the wonderful hope of God's Word, as we just saw, it's called to reproof and to what? Correct. And God's Word is transformative. The hope that God gives us in His Word is that we, by His grace, can change. And in fact, we see that in this story. Not here, I mean, we see it here in Haggai 1, but I just wanted to step out back for a second and turn to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra 6, 14, after they hear the prophecy that Haggai brings, and, and notice the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet. It's interesting to note how the Word of God forms a basis for this transformation there. And, and they finish the building. They do what God had decreed and what Cyrus and Darius had decreed. There's transformation that comes from the Word of God. And so the hope is here today, if, if God's Word is probing you, if He is coming and He is putting His finger on the areas in your life where Christ is not preeminent, the hope is the Word can change you. That through the Word, you would obey by God's grace. So we pursue the preeminence of Christ first and foremost by submitting to His Word. Secondly, what does His Word say? It's very simple. Christ's preeminence, we pursue it by giving Him priority. We've established that His Word is authoritative. Now, what does Haggai say we must do? Now, how do we give Christ priority? And this begins by evaluating our priorities. Evaluate your priorities priorities. Again, God's assessment is clear, right? How does he feel about Israel? Are they putting him first? No. It's obvious that's God's assessment. But God doesn't want just his assessment to hang over our heads and not impact and permeate our hearts. Rather, God goes on and says, now I want you to align your thoughts about your actions with mine. How does he do this? Twice in this passage, in verse 5, notice what he says. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, what is the command? Consider your ways. He says it again in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your 
ways. It's interesting here that God comes and he puts the onus, he puts the responsibility on you, particularly here on Israel. Think about what you're doing. Consider your ways. Again, this is what the writer of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God becomes a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And so Haggai calls the people to do the same thing. Evaluate what you put first. Again, God points to the state of the temple and asks them to consider. Again, that's verse 5. Again, here we go with math again. Comes on the, on the heels of verse 4. His house lies in ruins, he says. So once you see the state of God's house, then the call is to consider not your neighbor's way, not the leader's way. Consider whose way? Your way. I think, again, many of the reasons why we have all this pontificating about what's wrong with the church is we want to deflect from our own culpability for why the church is in the state it's in today. Consider your ways. God said, look at your house. It's, it's set. Everything's put together. You have your paneled houses. Look at my house. It's in shambles. Consider your ways. Now, we see this, that Israel was not seeking the kingdom of God first. But let's not be too hard on them. All right? They are, they are operating in immense difficulty. You know, I, I think about what it would have been like to rebuild Europe after World War II. You see these videos of, of what the cities in, in Germany look like, and the cities in France look like. I mean, they were literal shells of their former self. Imagine coming back to that and your house, which used to be in one place, is gone. Your friends, you have friends and family that are dead as a result of the bombing that's happened. You, and, and you come back into that type of situation and your natural inclination is to take care of yourself. I don't want us to be too hard on Israel, mainly because they were in the midst of an extremely difficult circumstance and God called them to place the priority on Him. What kind of circumstance are we in today in 2024 in America? We are filthy rich here in this country. And yet God's house still lies in tatters. Consider your ways. As we understand that, I think Haggai's words become even more convicting. We have so much. How do we continue to not prioritize the Lord? So as we look at this book of the prophecy, we need to take heart to heart the call to consider your ways. What are your priorities? What comes first? What is preeminent in your life? 
What do you put before everything else, including the Lord? Consider your ways. Beyond just considering what it is that we put forward, God is specifically calling them to say, all right, you've put other things first. How's that going for you? If you look what he says, he's like, in verse 8, or I'm sorry, verse 6, after he says, consider your ways, let's think about your ways. What have they done? You've sown much, but you've harvested what? Little. You eat, but you never have enough. That's how I feel when I go to the new Canes in Bridgeville. I eat and I never have enough. Sorry. Free commercial there. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you're never satisfied. You clothe yourselves, but you're no, one, you're, no one is warm. And boy, this last verse, if there is a verse that is applicable to American Christianity, it's this one. You earn your wages, you put them into a bag with what? Holes. How many of you have ever experienced that, that you spend so much time putting your efforts and your money into one place and then, poof, it's gone? The imagery that we have here is rich. And again, as we look back on some of the things we talked about as we walk through and discuss what the Scripture says about depression, sometimes we're depressed because we're putting our hope and satisfaction in things that can never satisfy. This is happening as well with our priorities. When we put other things besides the Lord first, they will always, 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 always fail us. There's never enough money. There's never enough prestige. There's never enough power. There's never enough fame. There's never enough possessions. They all leave us empty. When Christ is not preeminent, we will not have satisfaction. So we need to evaluate our priorities. Secondly, as we give Christ priority by evaluating our priorities and placing Him first, that begins by seeking His glory. Look at verse 7. Thus, 7 and 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your way. So at first He called us to evaluate. Now He's calling us, This is what you need to enact. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house. Now, I just want to point out, giving God priority is going to require effort. Who, who likes to go up to the hills, cut down the trees, and then drag them down the hills, chop them up, and start building? I mean, it's hard work. But what are we doing this for? Notice what he says in verse 8, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be what? Glorified, says the Lord. Behind selfish choices is a failure to worship God. Behind giving Christ the preeminence is a failure to glorify Him. God was not glorified by their pursuing of their own desires. He was not pleased by their actions. 
And so here he calls them and desires them to be pleased with them. God wants to delight in his people. He wants to be glorified by them. Again, notice what he says. He wants them to do this so that he may take pleasure in it, in the house that they're building. And that we may glorify him. And and I would just point out here that there's only one person, there's only one man who has walked the face of this planet and has perfectly pleased and glorified the Lord. And it is Jesus Christ. As Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 said, when Christ is baptized by John the Baptist, a voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well what? Pleased. And Jesus himself testifies in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished what? The work you gave me to do. Christ is both our hope and our example for being able to be said that we please and glorify the Lord. He is our hope because in Him, all our failures, all our our priorities that are so out of whack, every time we seek something besides Him, Christ in His righteousness cleanses us as we come to Him in faith. So God, as we look to Christ in faith, no longer looks at us as those who do not prioritize Him, but the righteousness of Christ is counted to our account. Because He never, He never failed to glorify and please the Father. Praise God, Christ always glorified the Father. But then He becomes for us an example The Scriptures talk about our our lives as Christians is to be conformed into whose image? Christ's image. So that we would be like Him in every aspect of our lives. That we would be Christ-like. So how do we seek God's glory? We seek God's glory by seeking to be like Jesus. And the third way... We seek Christ's preeminence by giving Him priority is by giving thanks for His discipline. It's interesting throughout this passage how God specifically talks about why they have been dissatisfied. It's no coincidence that their grain doesn't provide what they need. It's no coincidence that they drink but are never satisfied. It's no coincidence that they put on clothes but are still cold. It's no accident. God is doing it purposely. God turns us back to placing Him first in our lives by kicking out the crutches that we tend to depend upon. We see this in this passage. First of all, we see that um, they have gathered to themselves, they gather these things, um, and what does God do? He blows it away. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, the little that you were hoping that was going to be much, what does God do? He blows it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, and you take care of your own house. God says exactly why he did it. God makes no apologies for disciplining his people. 
And I'm sure that would have been a hard thing because, again, the thing that they're trying to do is rebuild and make a name for themselves, make a city for themselves, make a place to live. They're trying as hard as they can, and God just pushes and blows away the little bit that they gather from that. Why? Because he doesn't want them to put those things first. He kicks out their crutches. And so he says in verse 10, the heavens above have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and there's a drought on the land. And that land, it's the hills, the grain, the wine, the oil, and everything that the ground brings forth, and it also includes man, beast, and all their labors. God thwarts the productivity of his people when they seek something that is not putting him first. Why? To show us our need to seek him first. So what is the result? I'm so happy that that God places Haggai in his word because Many of the prophets declare Israel's sin, declare God's judgment, and then we we don't see how Israel responds. But here we see the result of God calling us to place Him first is that we should repent and turn to the Lord, not merely in word, but also in deed. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here's the thing. It is easy, it is easy for you to say, yes, Christ is first. That's simple, right? We can say that. It's a lot harder to live it out. God doesn't want us to give him lip service, does he? He wants us to live as he's called us to live. And so the third thing we see is we pursue Christ's preeminence by acting in obedience. We must act in obedience. And we see this in verse 12 through 15. In fact, the, the, uh, the, if you have a, a Bible that has headings, the headings of this section in my Bible says the people obey the Lord. Hallelujah! The first thing we see about the people's obedience is that they obey in the fear of the Lord. Look again at verse 12. And notice the comprehensive aspect that is affected here. God's word came from Haggai to Zerubbabel. It came to um, um, Joshua. And it came to the people. Who responds? Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God sent him. And then notice he specifically puts this out and highlights it. And the people, what? Feared the Lord. This is where obedience begins. It begins with the fear of of the Lord. Now, we don't have the time to exhaust this extensive subject in Scripture. Although, again, you remember the, the people that were following Jesus went for three days without eating, so maybe we could. No, I'm just kidding. 
I also recognize I'm not Jesus, so that makes a big difference. But it really points to not just an outward obedience, but an inward attitude and orientation towards the Lord. God does not want insincere allegiance to Him. He doesn't want you to act as though He is first when in your heart He is not. God doesn't want actions without the heart and He doesn't want a, and a, and a true heart has actions. There's no such thing as a true heart that doesn't act. He doesn't want us to feign that He has preeminence. Rather, His preeminence, preeminence must be a life-altering principle that is grounded in our fear of Him so that He captivates all that we are. I remember as a kid, I loved looking at fireworks. I still love it. Love that, I love that Scott Township shoots them off right over here at the church and we can just sit in our parking lot and see this beautiful display. I love looking at those things and I stand in awe of them. Even to this day, I still wonder when I see them go off, the big boom, the beautiful colors, the advances we have today with things going different ways and 3D uh, fireworks. I mean, it's amazing the stuff that, that they do today. I stand in awe of that. And you know, when I'm standing in awe of a firework and I'm looking up there, you know what? There's nothing else going on in my mind. That's what I'm looking at. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to be so in awe of Him that nothing else matters. That He's first in our hearts. So we obey in the fear of the Lord. Secondly, just to quickly wrap around from what we started talking about, we must obey according to God's Word. Again, notice what he says. It says that um, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet. God's Word formed for them the the path through which they were to act. And so they did what they were commanded to do. And so it is for us as, as we see that we're to put Christ first, we just need to do it. We need to live our lives that He would be first. To put everything subservient to Him, including ourselves. And then... Finally, we obey with confidence in God's presence and provision. Remember the background that Haggai is speaking into? These people are dealing with terrible circumstances, right? Their houses are destroyed. The, the city is in, in ruins. There's a big focus on the wall that needs to be built up so that there won't be other nations coming in and, and destroying them. Safety is a, a main concern. There's a lot of concerns here. Notice what God says in verse 13. After the people have obeyed, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Listen, just as authoritative as God's word is calling us to obey, that's just as authoritative as the message Haggai brings here. And what is that message? I am with you, declares the Lord. What a message of comfort that when we're called to place Christ first we're not called to do it in our own strength God is with us 
First, God promises that he's with them. What does Jesus tell us as he calls his disciples to go about spreading the gospel, making disciples of every nation, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you? And behold, I am what? With you, how often? Always, until when? The end of the age. There's a wonderful hope that when God calls us to obedience, He enables that obedience, and He enables that primarily by being with us. Secondly, we see that not only does God provide His presence, He also enables us to obey. And here's the wonderful thing about how great our God is. Sometimes you know that you want to to make God first, but you find yourself floundering over and over again. You need the desires of your heart to change. And God does that. Notice what we see in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit. And we see He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua. He stirred up, the high, uh, he stirred up all the remnant of the people. And then because God worked in their desires, what did they do? They came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. Listen, God does not work by forcing you to do something you don't want to do. You know how God works? He works by changing your spirit and your desires so that you would want to do what He calls you to do. So that it's no longer this idea that, that I'm going against and oh, Christianity is, is such a life full of doing things I don't want to do. No, it becomes your great delight. It becomes your great delight to do this. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to what? Will and to work for His good pleasure or to desire and do according to His good pleasure. As we encounter the Word, as the Word is used to probe our hearts and to point out the things in our lives, and as the Spirit comes, He changes and turns our hearts so that we would love and desire what God calls us to do. And thirdly, what we see is that God provides as we do this. We see in, in the end of here, chapter 1, they came and worked on the house of the Lord, and this happened on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. I feel like this verse is going to come up again about the time that we decide we're going to have work day here, and the Lord stirred in the people to come and work on the house of the Lord. Sorry. That's, all right. Hey, I got a few laughs there. Notice what happens in Ezra chapter 6. At, this is the same event going on here. The people offer. They come and they, this temple that they built, they now come and they offer an extravagant offering. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 12 male goats. Where did all that come from? Who provided that? God did. And God, as they give this, you know what this means? God doesn't ask them to give everything that they have. He asks them to give a portion. That means that there's more that he's provided for them. Listen, when you are obeying the Lord, there is great provision from him for everything you need. There's a wonderful hope 
that God gives us. In fact, if you continue through verse 22 of Ezra chapter 6, the people celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread. They're able to rejoice and have a celebration because of how God has provided for them. And so our attitude and our actions, when they're combined together, bring about a life that is filled with joy. When Christ is first, you will have true joy. Notice what Jesus says in John 15. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide. In my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be what? Full. When Christ is preeminent, your joy will be full. So Haggai calls us, to pursue the preeminence of Christ. Jesus takes up the same message in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Same things Haggai pointed out to the people of Israel. Listen, the Gentiles seek after these things, Jesus says. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You think God is surprised by your need for food and clothing and drink? He's not surprised. And He's your Father. What human father, when his son asks for him of bread, would he give him a stone? Or ask him of a fish, and would he give him a serpent? No human father would do that. Do you think our heavenly father isn't going to do that? So what should we do? How should that change the orientation of what we seek to do in this world? And Jesus says it very clearly. Seek first what? The kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God, Seek His righteousness and all that other stuff. What does God promise? It will be what? Added to you. Haggai calls us throughout this book to have a passion for Christ's preeminence. He tills the soil of our soul, pointing out the aspects of our lives that need to have Christ preeminent. Is Christ preeminent in your life? What areas in your life is He not preeminent? By God's grace today, may He be first. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it, Lord. And we pray, Father, that You would work through Your Word today. Guide and direct. May Christ be preeminent in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name.